Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. The great promise of success in America has been this, work hard, get an education, and there's nothing you can't do. That promise is no longer being kept for far too many of us. Student loan debt is eating away so much of our disposable income, keeping us from buying homes, starting families, and starting businesses. We're now living in a nation with more than a trillion dollars in student loan debt, and much of that debt cannot be refinanced or even cleared via bankruptcy. My guest today is Natalia Abrams. Natalia is the executive director of Student Debt Crisis, where she advocates for student debt reform, affordable education, and smart lending solutions for everyone pursuing a degree. Enjoy. My name is Natalia Abrams, and I am an unapologetic advocate fighting to end the student debt crisis. Sorry, not sorry. Federal student loan debt hitting a record just about one and a half trillion dollars last month, doubling since the recession. This is all we don't really understand the true impact that this debt is having, not only on individual households, but also on larger changed societies. Taylor Smith's life for the better. College debt changed it for the worse. Now 25, this sales rep for a Houston tech company feels pressured by loans she started taking out as a college-bound high school senior. You were 18 mm-hmm. and people were loaning you tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah, exactly. And nobody's talking so to you Fanny about Galante it. told us she will die owing money to her college loan lenders, while Taylor Smith has put off getting married, starting a family, buying a home until she has these loans paid off. So I want to start by actually talking about the impact of the student debt crisis. Well, first of all, like, why is this considered a crisis? Let's talk about that first. Yeah, and that's a great question because I think before we came on and called our organization student debt crisis, it was a debated topic. You were seen as being hyperbolic by using that term. But when we have 45 million student loan borrowers holding $1.5 trillion in debt, if that's not a crisis, I don't know what is. Paint the picture for me, the the micro and the macro of, of exactly what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, on a micro level, people are holding 35000 on average of student loan debt, but they're really holding 50000 100000 plus in student loan debt. They have less than $1,000 in their bank account. They're struggling to make $400 to $1,000 monthly student loan payments on top of rent and healthcare and everything else. You know, that's also a crisis. And... That's, you know, what the daily life is. And these are people that went to school to better their lives. Whether they completed or not, they got extra education after high school and they expected to just be, you know, solvent, not, you know, struggling every single day. So I think that's the life of a majority of student loan borrowers. And then on a macro effect, we're not seeing homes being sold in the same way. We're not seeing consumer goods being purchased in the same way. So it's definitely a drain on our overall economy. Not to mention a brain drain going on within rural communities who are, you know, finding themselves in no jobs. They're leaving their communities because they can't make that type of money. We're seeing this 
just impacts everyone. Men, women, we know women actually more than men. (laughs) And what's the percentage of people that actually are able to, because this is the thing that I've been thinking about a lot, that are able to go to college, get an education, get a degree, and then come out and can't get a job. Well, I think right now we, you know, the person currently in charge of our country would claim that we're at the lowest unemployment ever. And so I think the problem is not necessarily unemployment, it's underemployment. So people have jobs when they graduate from college. It's just, I've said before, they didn't necessarily major in whatever they majored in to get a job at Starbucks. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but that's not why they went to school. Right. So we have a bunch, you know, I don't know the percentage. I, my guess is it's somewhere around 20% or higher of underemployed. And how much does it cost to go to college? So it depends. If you're going to UCLA, we're here in Los Angeles, California, and that's going to cost you about 14000 just for tuition. We're not talking about room and board. If you're going to a private school, you're going to start at 30000 and go to 60000 But for the state schools, if you think, let's say, you know, 20000 a year on average, that's a lot of freaking money. That's $80,000 for four years. I don't know any family mm-hmm. that has saved that up that are using these loans and accessing. We're seeing this, you know, definitely impacting the middle class and working class families the most. And it seems like all of these costs are going up, not going down. They've gone up a thousand percent since we started the program. Since the late seventies, the cost of college has risen over a thousand percent. To be able to get a job, to actually have to pay off something that, like you said, is, is bettering themselves is, it just doesn't seem like it's, it's a formula for success. No, we have a disconnect too in this country, unfortunately, in generational issues that, you know, our, my parents, I'm in my mid to late thirties. Um, my parents were able to go to school, work up. My mom was able to go to school, work a part-time job, pay off her schooling in a couple of years. And so there's a disconnect when we have a lot of lawmakers saying, why don't you just get a part-time job and then you'll pay off your schooling? Again, when you're looking at these $15,000, $20,000 a year bill, you, a part-time job won't pay for that when people are making under $15 an hour. I don't know how people make ends meet. And then if you put, I mean, of course, people are waiting longer to have children, right? I mean, because you look at it and you say, well, how could I ever start a family yep. when uh, I'm still trying to pay off? Let's say someone goes to a four-year college. How much debt are they acquiring after four years? So the average is thirty-seven thousand. And a first job pays normally what twenty-five thousand dollars. Twenty-five to thirty thousand. You know, we're seeing teachers that make which require a credential and extra training, twenty-four thousand dollars a year in some states, with hardly any benefits, fighting for more. It's not set up to work anymore. It's a failed system. I mean, this not college, but the the system of lending, the system of lending right. for college. I've gotten to that point over eight years or nine years of doing this that, you know, at first I wanted to work on more middle of the road solutions. I feel that that's still important to stop the bleeding in the moment for people. But mm-hmm. ultimately, we have to scrap this system. We need to have free college and get rid of the debt. Um, and do a major restart because it's just, it's impossible where it's bogus on the balance sheet that money people owe right now. So how did we get here? I mean, you said it's really from the seventies. Well, that's when we started. Lyndon Johnson started the student loan system in the way we know it with the Higher Education Act. This is a proud moment in my life for the individual. Education is the path to achievement and fulfillment. And for the nation, 
It is a path to society that is not only free but civilized. And for the world, it is the path to peace. For it is education that places reason over force. Uh, Little Fat Student Loans actually started under Eisenhower to battle the Cold War to increase like STEM, what we know today as STEM majors, like math, science, engineering. So that was the beginning of student loans, but the mm-hmm. Higher Education Act under Johnson was to expand so more people were able to go to college. It was a good thing at the time. And it wasn't burdening people with $40,000 in debt. And it was allowing more than just the elite and wealthy to go to school. And then we saw, you know, just like a lot of programs that don't get underfunded and not taken care of during uh, the Reagan years, there was a big pull away and more privatization. And right. then the big impact is 2008 with the financial crisis. And that's where we th- see things get completely out of control because so many state budgets were tied, at, like budget pensions were tied to the financial markets. And then when those collapsed and states got hurt, the first thing they cut is higher education because they can. It's mm-hmm. not as protected as K through 12 in terms of budgets. And we know that's not very protected either, but the very first thing is higher education and it gets slashed. I think in Alaska, we just saw it slash 90%. A slowdown in the economy shouldn't mean a downturn in educational opportunities. So we're taking decisive action now to ensure that college is accessible and affordable for students around the country. One way we're helping is through the Department of Education's Lender of Last Resort program which works to provide loans for students who are unable to secure one from a lender. The department is taking steps to ensure that the agencies involved in this program are ready and able to meet their responsibilities. If necessary, the government will help fund these loans. With these actions, we will help ensure that a college education is not unnecessarily denied to those who have earned it. These are important first steps, but more needs to be done. Congress needs to pass legislation that would give my administration greater authority to buy federal student loans. By doing so, we can ensure that lenders will continue to participate in the guaranteed loan program and ensure that students continue to have access to tuition assistance. So tell me how how this impacts everyday Americans. They're not able to buy houses. They're not able to buy cars. They're, as you mentioned, they're not able to start families. I think it's confusing them and, you know, scaring them from other lending products as well. You know, I actually, I'm a homeowner. The lending from my home is much easier. I've also had some payment plans with the IRS. That's easier to deal with than the student lending industry. So I think daily they, there's like, we have 8 million people in default. Those people live in daily fear of calls from their servicers. That's Sally May. Navi, Wait, say that again. 8 million people. 8 million people in default. That means that they're not paying their loans and it means that their social security is being garnished. Their, uh, employment, their credit, uh, employment is being garnished. Um, their checks basically. And they, live in constant fear. They get calls sometimes up to 20 times a day from their loan servicers, bothering them, trying to find them. And we see those people actually jump from job to job. The moment that the, the loan servicer right. finds their job and they're attached a you know, garnishment on their paycheck, then they move on. <gasps> so it, it harms employers too. You know, of that's course. what people need to know. This harms people that don't have student loan debt. If you're thinking it doesn't, that's, you know, we're Getting that a lot right now with uh, Bernie Sanders and Senator Sanders and Senator Warren's proposals of forgiving debt. We're getting a lot of what about me? I paid for it. 
But we need to realize how this is impacting the overall economy. Can you talk about the differences between low-income and middle-income families and how they are impacted? There's, there's, there's a similarity for anyone that just doesn't have enough money to pay for it outright. And it's just so typical for other bad financial products. But we're seeing women, women of color, majority of African-American women that are the most impacted um, in overall student loan debt. Uh, here's a crazy fact for you. Two-thirds of women hold student loan debt. So that's a trillion of the 1.5 trillion. Uh, this is a major women's issue. I have student loans, too. And I think it's so funny. A year ago, I was waiting tables in a restaurant, and it was literally easier for me to become the youngest woman in American history elected to Congress than it is to pay off my student loan debt. So that should tell you everything about the state of this of this uh, of of our economy and the state of quality of life for working people. Because in order for me to get a chance to have health care, in order for me to get a chance to pay off my student loans, I had to do something that was nearly impossible. And I don't think that that is the bar through which a person should be able to access education, health care, and a bevy of other things that should be considered human rights. And we're seeing, you know, on the lower income communities, we're seeing, unfortunately, a lot of for-profit college abuse, uh, people not, you know, being directed into the right schools, going to for-profit colleges like ITT Tech, which it was shut down, or Corinthians, which was shut down, um, and they're paying the same price as a degree at UCLA or Cal State Northridge, and then those schools are closing, their degrees are worthless, and we're seeing them impacted in that way. We're also seeing um, all across the income lines, non-completes be impacted. People that were not able to complete their education for one reason or another often cost. That's how I got involved was the UC system, the University of California system rose tuition 38% in 2010. And I had a few of my good friends drop out of the second semester of their senior year because they couldn't afford to pay for it. I was lucky, but... There were major uh, protests, and since then I haven't stopped working on the issue because it's the only financial product that they can change the price on you once you've entered. When right. you buy a car mm. or lease a car, they don't say, oh, by the way, now your such-and-such car is now $10,000 more, more this year. Right. What other big-ticket item do they change the price on? Or what other item that you're getting a loan for? Right. Do they exactly. change the, the – that's – well, That's you really get a loan essentially every year. You file right. your fast, your financial aid forms yearly. So it's new loans every year. So then, uh, you know, more to what borrowers face every day, they face eight to 10 to 18 different loans that they have to manage. I didn't go they to college. To Can you consolidate. tell? <laughs> I didn't have to pay for college tuition. I started acting at seven years old. I knew exactly <laughs> what I was going to do. I was like, okay, we're in this. But I think, you know, age-wise, you would have been okay, too. My, you know, it, it, you and I were right at that cusp where it wasn't so bad. Right. The reason I got so impacted was I went back as a non-traditional student past 25. So I should have gone to college in the early 2000s. That I, It cost me double by going to college 10 years later. I can tell you from my own impact. That's Which, how, that's crazy, yeah. too, because yeah. when you think about it. I'm not it, that old. Who, who out of high school knows exactly right. what they want to do, right. right? And especially nowadays when... All of the electives are cut. 
in high school. There's yep. no PE. There's no music class. I there's know. no art classes. There's no creative thinking at all. And it used to be that you went to, you know, you figured out what you wanted to do in elementary school and in high school, and then you went to college for those things. Now, because all those programs are cut, people have to go to college to figure out what they want to do. And really, how do you know what you want to do when you're 18 years old or 20 years old? Right. You have no idea. Yep. Absolutely. And so I think that's an issue too, where Let's people say, are going to college to figure it out. And then I think you were smart. <laughs> you were, you because know, if you were, if you were like, I don't know what I want to do. And then you figured it out 10 years later and you're like, this is what I wanted to do. What yeah, I want to do. Except for is, it cost me double. <laughs> except that part. Yeah. But, which is crazy. Yeah. I do think there's a sense of that. I will really credit community college, which I did for two years. And I think for those, look, there's some folks that definitely know right what they want to do when they're 18. Um, right. And they should go for it. But I think community college, those two years can be a great time at a cheaper price to explore it. So, you know, I think there are ways to not hurt yourself so much with this financial aspect of college. But on the flip side, if you are that driven person, you shouldn't have to go to a different college. You should be able to just go on your track and not have to worry about the 40, 50, 60,000 yearly dollars that you're going to pay. So speaking of high school, are there programs that teach kids about what they have to go through in order to create a student loan uh, to go to college? No, there is no financial education. And I actually really think that word is important, education versus literacy, because I don't want to imply anyone's illiterate. No one even knows. Um, but there's no financial education in high school for this at all. And there's no financial education in college for this. You take a entrance and exit exam on paying back your student loans that's mandated by the federal government. Most people do it, you know, one eye open, just click the buttons and go through. There's nothing that, you know, is really explaining and nothing, you know, I've talked to kids that have done those um, entrance tests, nothing saying here there are repayment programs that you can get into if you need help. There's public right. service loan forgiveness if you want to go into public service work. There's nothing that's telling them that. At Student Debt Crisis, we do workshops to help bridge that gap. Um, we're a small grassroots nonprofit. We are going to continue doing this till the Department of Education does their job, but we need a broader way to teach people about what's going on. But this is why I start getting into all this, and ultimately, we just need to get rid of it. We need to get rid of this loan system that's so complicated that, you know, college graduates with doctoral degrees can't understand. I don't often use the phrase... Uh, but today we are, in fact, offering a revolutionary proposal, a proposal that will transform and improve our country in many, many ways. In a highly competitive global economy, when we need the best educated workforce in the world, this proposal will make it possible for every person in America to get all of the education they need regardless of their financial status. This means not only a college education, but the right to enter a trade school, the right to learn how to become a carpenter or a plumber or a sheet metal worker and get one of the many important jobs that keep our society going. In other words, we will make a full and complete education 
a human right in America to which all of our people are entitled. Let's talk about that a little bit. And let's talk about uh, the 2020 candidates and their solutions. It's been an amazing year working in this field for eight years uh, plus that it was our dream. We got our start actually with a petition to forgive student loan debt. It was much more mild than the current proposals. It was that everyone pay for 10 years. And then after that, the rest is forgiven, no strings attached. And that we got 1.2 million signatures on that. It was a move on petition. Wow. And that helped launch our organization. So to see now in 2019 of the 2020 candidates, two of them, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren, calling for debt cancellation um, is just amazing. It's what I've hoped for. You know, I know we're not there yet, but the amount of attention that's been brought to the issue, the fact that every candidate has either a plan or has talked a lot about not just higher education, but student loan debt, it feels that you know, the million people or so we represent on our mailing list and which is a microcosm, the 45 million are finally being heard and finally being represented. I mean, even the fact that I'm here with you today is proof that this issue is getting bigger and being recognized. So we're finally at the point of recognition. Now we have to move to action and real legislation being passed. So we applaud both so any any candidate that's talking about canceling the debt. We applaud any candidate. Uh, candidate that's talking about pay, you know, free debt-free college, free community college. You know, while I, we have decided based on our member feedback and what they want to, you know, our group is about canceling the debt and making sure that we have debt-free college in the future. We also will take some middle of the road approaches over time because we need to stop this bleeding. The people are hurting so badly every day. My name is Samer Hassan. I'm 28 years old, and I currently have $22,000 in student loans. Hi, my name is Kylan. I'm 23 years old, and I currently owe $90,000 in student loans. Hi, my name is Michael. I'm 27. I live in New York, and I'm a public servant. I'm about $134,000 Hi, my name is Elizabeth, and as of today, I owe $108,137.48 in student loans. The student loan crisis is getting out of control, and the way it's taking advantage of people crippling my generation is unfair, and things seem to change. This is going to turn into an $800 bill every month. Um, I was turned down for rentals recently. Think about it, pretty much any time I spend money, I, I have a lot of anxiety around spending money because every time I do, I know that I have this like sort of insurmountable. By the time I graduate university, that will be $80,000. Student loans and the interest rates that come with them are basically predatory. debt is completely forgiven. People have been really harmed in the last 10 or 20 years, especially the last two years under Betsy DeVos, and they have a legal right to action, whether or not their debt is forgiven. Interesting. Tell me a little bit about that. Let's go back to those ITT tech students. Yeah. So they, their school closed. There's a, a law that says if your school closes, you can get your money back. 
They created some way so they didn't get their money. Right. And then there was a new law, or an old law that was found called defense to repayment. They brilliant um, advocates at Strike Debt figured out a way to help these ITT tech kids get their debts forgiven. Barack Obama decided, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to forgive those debts, promise them. The moment Betsy DeVos took office within like a, you know, a few months, she rolled that back and said, no. So now like 946 plus people just sued Betsy DeVos and won, which is awesome. That's amazing. But they had to fight this hard to get their money back for a school that just closed down. Yeah, of course. Um, so this is what we see going on. Those people have, you know, consumer rights that have been broken and they have a right to them. We used to have a really vibrant, good, protective CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, we saw, especially within student debt, the Office of Students be re- removed and Seth Frotman, who is a great advocate, be removed from that and... Just a reversal on policies where now essentially they are pro-lender, pro-servicer, and not pro-student. So so it's consistent with the rest of the administration. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, Betsy DeVos <laughs> is thought of as like the worst cabinet member um, out there. And she's definitely the worst secretary of education we've ever had. Secretary DeVos, since you assumed office... Federal student loan borrowers who've been cheated by their colleges and overwhelmingly by predatory for-profit colleges have been blocked from getting the relief that they do deserve. You tried to reduce the amount of debt relief students can receive, and you unsuccessfully tried to block new rules put in place by the Obama administration to streamline the borrower defense process and put in additional protections for our students. And according to the information that you provided to this committee, roughly 140,000 borrower defense claims are pending review by your department, and this number seems to increase by hundreds every day. When was the last time the department approved a borrower defense claim? Uh, The department is is reviewing and approving the ones for closed loan discharge regularly. As you know, the borrower defense rule, the the, uh, judge has requested that that be put into effect. We are in the process of doing so. So Uh, Let me just remind you that when I came into office, we were greeted with tens of thousands of claims for for borrower defense, and we did not agree with the Obama administration's approach to this. I I understand that, but a court order has now told you to move forward. And we are in the process of implementing that. My question is simple. Um, Has the department approved even one borrower defense claim? Since that court order, uh, I believe so. Uh, we're do, we're reviewing you, them regularly. How many? And I don't have the specific number. I'd be happy if you'd like many? to submit a question for yeah, the record. No, I'd like I'll to be know happy if any of your back. staff members behind you have an idea of when that. Uh, how many have been approved? Well, okay. Apparently not. <laughs> um, there's nothing stopping you from providing full relief to struggling borrowers today. Uh, surely there must be some of those borrowers who you feel deserve a full discharge. And I don't understand why the department can't fully discharge the loan today for tens of thousands who were defrauded years ago by Corinthian colleges, including more than 2,000 from my home state who are waiting. The Corinthian college uh, students' uh, claims are being processed and dealt with 
forthwith and will continue to be. And we are continuing to review the appropriate steps based on the judge's request that this 2016 regulation be implemented, while at the same time we are continuing to work on that was, revising that was regulation. six months ago, and those students are still waiting, that the court ordered this to move forward. So these students are waiting. And uh, and I want to know if you can get back to me how many have been approved because be happy, it appears to me that to we so. have not moved forward at all on this and that's not fair to those students or their families or their future. Can you talk to a little bit about the differences in what Senator Sanders is proposing and Senator Warren? Yeah, so while they both are, you know, talking about debt cancellation, Sanders is talking about full cancellation and free college, and he's wrapped that into one big bill that is uh, the cost of $2 trillion. Warren has given us a little more detail where she's talking about $50,000 in loan forgiveness. So she's putting a cap on it. And she's also putting an income cap that for folks that make under $150,000, they'll get full forgiveness. And then under like $250,000, they'll get partial forgiveness. Up to 75% of people will get for full forgiveness under Warren's plan. And 95% of people, borrowers, will get something. What I find interesting about Warren's plan, just kind of going back to the consumer protections, is that I almost see this as a giant class action lawsuit settlement of that 50 grand. When I think of the, all of the collective harm borrowers have endured from their servicers, it, for some reason, that makes sense to me. Um, of course, we're full, full cancellation, but if we can't get there, having a more detailed plan excites me. You know, I, I, I am a believer that if we're, you know, Warren has a plan for that. And I know if anyone has really thought this through, it's her because we've worked hand in hand with her when she was at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and as a senator for refinancing student loans. So this has been a passion of her yeah, she comes for a to long this time. Issue yeah. Very honestly and very organically, I yeah. feel like it's always been a part of her, yeah. of her being um, in but things that she wants to make better, this feels like it's something that she's always believed in. It's yes, it's her one of her passions. Yeah, you know, this has got to be the fight. We've got to have that. I mean, this is crazy that you can refinance your home, you can refinance your car, you can refinance your business loans, but you can't refinance student loan debt. And as a result, we're, we've got kids stuck at high interest rates, and the government making tens of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in profits off their backs. So my view on this is, you know, we don't give up. We just keep fighting harder and harder. This touches families all across America, and I believe they're going to be part of this fight. We have to give a lot of credit to Senator Sanders for bring, making this a huge 2016 issue. I don't know if Hillary Clinton would have ever taken this up if Mm-mm. Sanders hadn't made it a huge issue. So I point. think he really helped us make this, this what we call a big eye issue. Um, the way we talk about healthcare or gun rights or immigration, you know, this finally student loan debt is getting up there. And frankly, just that's all we ask is to have a seat at the table. Right. We in no way think this is a, the biggest crisis out there. We, it's the biggest crisis to the student loan borrowers. But, you know, our country is in crisis right now. And so we just want to make sure, um, but we have to work on everything going on. It's so interesting because in my 20 
five years of being politically active, there's one question that every single candidate, and it doesn't matter if it's, you know, someone running on a state level or a federal mm-hmm. level, they always ask me this one question. And this was from when I was young to now. And that is, how can we get more kids to vote? How do we get mm-hmm. more young people mm-hmm. to vote? How do we get more young people involved? And I used to always say, you have to talk about the issues that are impacting young people. This this is not some like, (laughs) you know, weird formula. You just have to talk about these issues. And it feels like finally with, you know, how candidates are talking about gun reform Mm -hmm. and student loan debt, that they're finally paying attention to the issues that affect young people. And of course, it's going to get more young people to the polls. As an electoral issue, it's a really good issue for candidates to take up. I mean, student loan debt affects all generations. Millennials are getting older. I'm on that cusp. I don't know what I am. I'm 39 years old, so I'm both a millennial and an Xer. But we're, you know, in our 30s, having kids, trying to buy homes. We're no longer 20 or 18. And then we see student loan debt affecting everyone from the 18-year-old deciding to go to college to people in their 60s and 70s, both dealing with their children's student loan debt and their own. And in fact, people in you know their 60s and 70s are facing the biggest growth in student loan debt. So for an issue, this will both absolutely excite young people because they can grasp this and understand what student debt is and college debt, but it, it will also not alienate older voters because they too are incredibly impacted by this. Right. Your thoughts on on Booker's baby bonds? We already use our tax code, you know this, to shift wealth up. In other words, if you got wealth, we're going to give you tax breaks to create more wealth. Well, why don't we use our tax code in America to say that everybody in America should have a birthright in this country of some foundation, some nest egg of wealth. And the way we're going to do that, because you know paychecks help you get by. Wealth helps you get ahead. And so every child born in America, if I'm president, we're going to say that you get a $1,000 savings account. By the way, we're in a community college. The data shows that if a kid knows they have an interest-bearing account for them, as low as $500, their chance of going to college goes up three times. But now we would say for every kid in America, after every kid, no matter what your kid gets, that's $1,000 interest-bearing account. But now every year of your life, depending upon the income of your family, you get upwards of $2,000 more placed into this. This would affect tens of thousands of Iowans because by the time they're 18 years old, they would have upwards of $50,000, lowest income kids. That means if you're in a farm town and you want to hold on to that family farm or buy equipment, you've got money you can invest. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, on 529 accounts, I think that that only benefits the upper middle class and the wealthy because they're the ones that are able to invest anyways. I think that we need to make college free and pay off the debt. I think those kind of uh, proposals are things that we need to stop investing in. In 1970, roughly 1% of cab drivers and firefighters had a college education. Fast forward to today, and over 15% do, with no major change in skill set over that period of time. This is education arbitrage. Education arbitrage means different things to different groups and people. For the employer, it's the inefficiency in value between a college education and productivity in the workplace. For the student, it's the disparity in value between a college education and future earnings. Most recently, education arbitrage has been used to describe the imbalance in the labor markets, specifically the oversupply of college education. 
It's why we have more college graduates working in retail than we do soldiers in the U.S. Army. I mean, roughly half of college graduates are in jobs that don't even require a college degree. Yet, colleges and universities continue to talk about their record enrollment and graduation rates, even though we're not, produ we're not producing jobs in the economy to keep up with the supply. It is projected between 2010 and 2020, we'll create 19 million more college graduates, yet the economy will only produce 7 million more jobs that require a college degree. <laughs> the numbers just don't make sense. To say we have a supply and demand issue is an understatement. Okay, what would eliminating all current student debt do? Yeah, so it will increase GDP, it will lower unemployment. We know that it will, I just think of the, the mental and emotional boost that we'll all get from this, that borrowers will get. We will see people be able to purchase a home. All of these things that we are saying borrowers are being kept from, they will be able to do. Uh, I think there's also a really capitalist edge to this where in capitalism, we have bankruptcy. We have reset. That's part of our capitalist system. Businessmen, and I know some personally, have been able to take out very large loans. Their business fails and they are able to walk away from it and start again. Why is a 30, 40, 50-year-old businessman able to do that, but an 18-year-old that doesn't even understand what it's a great the point. heck they're getting it's a great into point. have no you know, way to reset and restart. And, and what, what do you say to the past generations that, have, you know, that are saying, but I, I paid off my debt, my student debt? What do you say to those people? So to get a little personal about myself, I've been recently diagnosed with a uh, baby form, I call it baby cancer, a neuroendocrine cancer. And uh, if they found the cure for cancer and no one ever had to get cancer, never had to go through what I went through, I wouldn't be jealous. I would be so happy that people were able to go through mm. something new or not have to go through that or not have to experience that. So, you know, I just say grow up ultimately. You know, I was thinking <laughs> with the nature of your podcast, that is my sorry, not sorry, that we need to just want better for the newer generation. We want collectively the country to do better. So I understand that there is, everyone has a selfish edge. Trust me, we will grow as, a, as an economy and a country. It's important to have an educated workforce. It's important to have educated voters. You know, if we, we don't want to dumb down our population and we're doing that de facto in a way by increasing the cost of education and making it feel so out of reach. We're getting back to before President Johnson and the Higher Education Act, we're getting back to that time where only the elite and wealthy are able to afford college. Here's what I think is missing in this debate. And that is an open acknowledgement that what we have today in higher education as it is currently structured is becoming increasingly and inexplicably unaffordable. And that's the part that isn't being discussed here. The fundamental problem here isn't the loans. The fundamental problem here is the tuition rates that continue to climb across this country. In fact, according to the Wall Street Journal today, institutions of higher education, they grew their revenue faster than inflation from 2005 to 2011. And of course, the spending also grew. How many other parts of our economy grew their revenue and their spending at a pace faster than inflation over the last decade? The federal student loan program has now swollen to uncomfortable proportions. 
One reason for this might be that in recent years, states have slashed funding for higher education by 23%. Public institutions have responded by raising tuition rates, forcing students to take out ever larger loans. Why else do you think the colleges have so many f***ing a cappella groups? They know they sound stupid, they just can't afford instruments anymore. Another consequence of these cuts has been that some community colleges have been forced to reduce capacity, leading to things like a nursing program in North Carolina with a waiting list just to get on the waiting list. So let's talk a little bit about what states are doing specifically yeah. um, to, to deal with this crisis. So we're seeing states come in and... First and foremost, work on consumer protections. They're trying to step in where the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau left off and stopped working on. So we're seeing borrower bill of rights, say that five times fast, bills across the country. We have about 13 states that have bills. Uh, we have, we meaning student debt crisis, have co-sponsored a bill with NextGen Consumer Reports and Young Invincibles in the Student Borrower Protection Center. And that's AB 376. We are so close to passing. We're about to go to the Senate floor for a full vote. And if passed or when passed, I should say, it will be the strongest consumer protection bill for borrowers in the country. And this will create a central agency where borrowers can go to if they've been wronged and they can actually look and get action um, with their student loan debt. And they can also ask questions or figure out what you know programs they need to be into Right now, we need to help student loan borrowers day to day. So that's why we do workshops where we talk about all of the available repayment programs. You know, something if there's a student loan borrower listening, if you have federal loans, you should never fall into default. Those 8 million people that we talked about, there is absolutely no reason for them to be in default because there are programs. But of course, our department, our education department t- doesn't tell them about it at all. So we only have 5 million people of the 45 million people on these programs. I'm pausing only because I, I don't feel that we are, and, and having two young kids, we're just not equipping our kids with what they need to be productive members of society in a way that it it clearly um, maps out what they need to do. Right. We're not giving them the tools right. uh, to contribute, to take responsibility, to know how to do the most basic, the most basic things. And by the way, this is something alone is something they have to deal with their entire life. So why are we not educating them on what that means? I hate to say it, but I feel like it's a bit by design. Student loans can follow you until you die? I mean, we hope that's where it stops. <laughs> oh, it would suck if you were still paying off your loans in heaven, you know? Jesus and Martin Luther King Jr. are like, hey, we're going to go ride unicorns. You want to come? And you're like, oh, I can't. I got to work a shift at Blockbuster. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's blockbusters in heaven. That's, that's where they are now. Miss you, blockbuster. The point is, the point is, student debt is affecting everyone. Young people, old people, the village people. I mean, why do you think they were living at the YMCA? So whether you're a parent or a kid, there is a good chance that student debt is negatively affecting your quality of life. Because old people are losing social security and young adults are being forced to move back in. In fact, 
If something drastic doesn't change, it's going to reshape the American family forever. Okay, so my my last question is, I want to go to the place where Natalia Abrams is the new such Secretary of Education. <laughs> yeah. um, what would you do on day one to fix this problem? Well, first, I would hire Seth Frotman and Rohit Chopra and some other really amazing people. Um, you know, I always say that I'm an armchair policy person and I'm an advocate and activist at heart. But I would make sure that we we listened to the millions of borrowers that have been going through this and we looked at them as the first injured party. So we started with working on the student loan debt aspect. Then we have to go to curbing college costs and making college debt free or free so we don't see the situation happen again. So that would be my first move in this weird alternative world that I'm secretary of education. Well, stranger things have happened. Look at Betsy well, DeVos. Yeah, never say never. That's <laughs> never true. say never. Yeah, I shouldn't think that I could do a better job than the current people. That's all, what I've always felt, that I want my leaders to be smarter than me. And I sadly do not feel that way right now. I don't know, maybe the worst thing to ever happen to the American middle class is the 30-year mortgage. In the years following World War II, consumers bought houses based on how much they could afford to pay for the house. With the advent of extended mortgages, people stopped thinking about the total price and started thinking about how much they could afford per month. Banks obviously love it. With the amount of interest paid over all those years, they make a killing. And because the total cost wasn't as readily apparent, developers just keep jacking up their prices. A house which sold in the 1950s in New Hampshire for $8,000 now sells for more than $200,000. It's keeping the people poor and the bankers and developers, you know, the Kushners and the Trumps, rich. And now we do the same thing with education. It's no longer about the value for the price or even about the return on the investment. For most, the return will almost never catch up with the monthly payment that will follow many into middle age. It keeps us from achieving our full potential as individuals and as a culture. It's a symptom of our society, which focuses on profit over people and on the rich over the poor. Housing, Healthcare, education. These shouldn't be commodified for the rich to feast on. These are basic human necessities. They are why we have a society. They are the things we do for one another because they make us stronger. Or at least they should. When we let the few gain at the expense of the many, it just makes us weak. And we're getting weaker. It's Thanksgiving week here in the United States. We have less than a year until the 2020 elections. Maybe around the Thanksgiving table, instead of arguing politics, put the philosophies aside and just make a simple pact. You will all vote. It's our greatest opportunity to right the ship, or if you think it's already on the right course, to keep it that way. If you celebrate, I wish you and your family the greatest happiness possible. My family and I are grateful for you and yours. Happy Thanksgiving. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry.